0: Daverdog reacted to a change in the wind. So the others went down to check out the second meadow while the botanist and the ranger hiked out to the plane. The ranger radioed for a helicopter to pick him up so that he could show the chopper where to find the others, including Irene. But by the time the helicopter came to the landing strip for the ranger, the weather was bad. The chopper pilot said they'd just have to go back for the others after the storm. They had problems making it back to the ranger station as it is. And the storms are supposed to get worse in the next 24 hours. They won't send in a chopper today. The pilot of the plane said if these two guys had come out an hour later, they wouldn't have been able to take off at all. Fucking wussies, Dalton grumbled. I've told him the basics, Jack said. As you can tell, he's already got some opinions on the matter. "Fucking hey, Dalton said, crossing his arms over his thin chest. How long ago did these two leave the rest of the group? This morning. The rain and hiking with the body slowed them down. My partner's going to try to talk to them, but it doesn't look likely. He learned as much as he could from the pilot of the plane. When he didn't go on, Travis said... You looked upset when you walked in here. I take it there was more to it than that? I don't know, Frank said. I don't know. Maybe it's nothing, but more than a fourth of the people who started out on this project are no longer with the group. And Pete said the pilot told him that these two were real unhappy about taking off. The botanist had promised to stay with the body, but he still protested about leaving the others. The ranger was even more adamant. When the pilot asked the ranger what the big deal was, since the group had enough people "'Had enough food to be out for a couple of more days. "'The ranger said that he thought the guards were fatigued. Hmm. Jack said, frowning. "'He turned to Travis. "'Why don't you take out those Topo we marked up? "'It won't hurt anybody if some extra campers show up in the area, right?' "'Free country,' Dalton said with a grin. "'Hell of a thing for a tax accountant to be saying,' Jack muttered. "'Travis unfolded the map, and on one of them pointed out a location on the western ridge. "'That's where the makeshift airstrip is.' "'He moved his finger along the line that connected a series of dots.' "'That's the trail we think they were on when the lawyer was injured.' Dalton nodded. "'How many days ago you say that was?' "'Tuesday,' Frank answered. Two days ago.' "'Hmm,' Dalton frowned over the map. "'How many folks you say were on this star voyage?' "'Originally or after the lawyer was taken home?' "'After.' Twelve people and a German Shepherd.' "'The ranger was gone for a day or so, then rejoined them after getting the lawyer out. "'And the ranger and the botanist say the others were tired but doing okay as of this morning?' "'Yes. "'And the ranger hasn't been with them much, right?' I mean, after this lawyer got stepped on, the ranger had to hike out and back in. Had to find the others, and now he's hiked out again. Spent most of his time on the hoof. I think so. At least, that's the way it sounds to me. Tell me about the people in this group. You don't need to bother with the ranger. I don't think he figures into this much, into this part of the, um, the equation very much. Just tell me about the others. Including Parrish? Especially Parrish. Frank told him as much as he could, although he knew little of Ben Sheridan, David Niles, or Andy Stewart. From Dalton's question, he soon figured out what the other man was interested in. How would this group work together? How, who would make decisions? How fit were they? How experienced as hikers? The main b- problem before them, where the group had gone after they left newly started to feel more like the kind of problem he had worked with every day. Human behavior. So if you were this person, thinking the way he does and in this situation, what would you do next? Instead of the unfocused, nagging anxiousness of the past few hours, Frank knew he had something to work with, something he could set his mind to. "'You think Parrish was bringing these women to this place alive?' Dalton kept asking. "'Yes,' Frank said. He told Steve flew Julia Sayer to the airstrip, made her hike for about a day, forced her to dig her own grave, then tortured and killed her. Everything about it was planned. He had chosen her long before he made the kill. He isn't disorganized or opportunistic. You listen to him talk. It's all under control.' He frowned. Except, except this victim you caught him on. I wasn't the one who caught him. Not my case, but was it difficult catching him on that one? No, Frank said, already seeing where this was going. It wasn't as difficult as it should have been. Broke a pattern? Stinger, with only one body and nothing more than Parrish's own version of the Sayer case, Jack said scornfully. How the hell could the cops tell which of the two cases set the pattern? But Frank was not so quick to answer. Because He knew. He knew there had been other victims he had said just as much to his bosses when the news of the deal with Parrish came down every other detective in the department said had said as much they all had known that the DA had made the wrong call mr. Dalton's right Frank said Parrish broke a pattern he drew a steadying breath he wanted us to catch him because Dalton asked because he knows that he'll escape he might want to Jack said watching Frank begin to pace but he couldn't know who would be going up into the mountains, or how heavily guarded he would be. Frank didn't answer. He was thinking of Parrish's two known victims, dark hair, blue eyes, near Irene's age. Never mind polishing that strip of floor, Frank. Get over here and take a look at these maps. Mother Nature has just given us a little time to figure out where our man made himself a couple of cemeteries. According to what this ranger ranger and the botanist said, we're looking for two meadows that divided by a range that could be several places but not as many places as you'd think dalton said no frank agreed those two made it in less than a day carrying a body and hiking in the rain Julia really say "A big woman no and the remains might be nothing more than a skeleton or a partial skeleton after this much time right so let's see what this ground looks like and start making circles come up with likely places then as soon as the weather clears we'll take a pass over them save some time if we do the little thinking before we go After the first hour of looking at the maps, Frank felt less optimistic. There were so many places the group could have reached within the small time frame, and the likelihood of finding the right ones seemed small. But as Dalton continued to study them, he found reasons to eliminate one or another, narrowing the field. I'm not saying cross them off the list altogether, he said, standing up and stretching, but they aren't where I'd look first. As he walked away from the table, Frank said, You aren't stopping now, are you? Dalton opened his mouth to make a rude reply, then closed it. He studied Frank for a moment, then said, Do you good to take a break from it, too? I guess, figure, I'll enjoy a little dog time. You all do what you want. I'm going to attend to my guests. He moved to the floor and began to wrestle with Deacon Dunk, who entered into the spirit of the game immediately, complete with loud and dramatic barks and growls. Jack gave an apologetic look to Frank and Travis, stingers to do the things his own way he said, trying to keep his voice low and yet still be heard over the ruckus. No use trying to push him, but I'll go with you if you want to leave. Frank's need to reassure himself that Irene was safe tempt- tempted him to leave, tempted him until it was almost irresistible. Staying still was maddening. The urge to move, to act, to get as close to the mountains as possible nearly drove him to set aside all other considerations. But as he smoothed the uppermost topo map between his hands, spreading his fingers in an effort to release a fraction of the tension that invaded every muscle in his body, He saw circle after circle on the map, and realized that trying to find her without the help of the helicopter pilot would be all but impossible. There was simply too much ground to cover, and the storm would only make things worse. The weather is what's holding us up. Not your friend, he said. Stinger's not the problem. I like him, Travis said. Did he fly helicopters in Vietnam? Never heard of the place, Dalton said from the floor. He might be gray-haired, Jack said, but the crazy-ass wild man's ears are still sharp. So is his mind- Frank, stought, Frank thought, studying the map as Dalton's laughter mixed with the bar- barks and growls of the dogs, so is the crazy-ass wild man's mind. Good morning, good evening, good whenever you're listening to this, we are back with episode 4 of Shazara and Sunflower. Uh, today we're going to be reading chapters 19 through 24 of Bones by Jan Burke. Um, so, without further ado, let's get into this shit. Thursday afternoon, May 18th. The Mojave Desert, let me go in first, Jack Fremont says, as Travis brought the van to a halt at the foot of the gravel drive. Jack had warned him not to pull up into the drive itself. The man they had come to see was serious about backing up his no trespassing signs. Frank sat in the back of the van with the dogs. I know the delays are killing you, Jack said to him, but once we get past Stinger's little welcoming rituals, he'll be able to save us a hell of a lot of time. Not if this weather holds, Frank said, taking an anxious look at the sky, Maybe not if it stays as bad, Jack agreed. "'But wouldn't you, But you wouldn't be able to make much progress on foot in this weather, either. "'The mud would slow you down to a crawl.' "'Are you sure you can trust this guy?' Frank asked, "'taking a wary look at the odd structure at the end of the drive. "'It was a homemade house if he'd ever seen one, "'a pile of cemented rocks and timber that looked more like a cross "'between a log cabin and a low-budget medieval castle than a home. "'I would trust Stinger Dalton with my life, and have on several occasions. "'Just give me a minute to get him used to the idea of having company.' They watched Jack move down the driveway, hands held up as if he were at gunpoint. Oh yeah, he trusts him with his life, Travis said. Trust him to try and take it, it looks like. Frank shook his head. Roll the windows down a little. I want to hear this. Frank had been willing to go in alone to find Irene if that's what it would take, but he had been relieved when Travis insisted on being included. Jack had come over not much later and, seeing them preparing their gear, offered to join them. That had been an even greater relief, not just because Jack was resourceful and a skilled outdoorsman. Jack said he would trust Stinger Dalton with his life, and Frank felt that same level of trust in Jack, a trust he seldom extended to others. Jack lived next door, and his concern for Irene would be nearly as great as his own, Frank knew. Jack hadn't tried to talk him out of going into the mountains. Without any hesitation, he had simply asked to be allowed to help. Watching Jack Walking through the rain, hands held high, Frank wondered if Jack was risking his life and limb for Irene right at this moment. But as if Jack could feel their concern, he looked over his shoulder at them and smiled. Deke and Dunk lifted their noses to the open window, watching anxiously as Jack moved further away from the van. It had been Jack's idea to bring them along. They aren't trained to track, Frank had objected, and I don't want to be worried about them. They won't be able to find this group any faster than we will. There's a male dog on this expedition she's on, Right. Right. Maybe they'll find this other dog then. Besides, your dogs have been camping with me more than once. They'll behave. For you, they will, Travis said, speaking Frank's thoughts on the subject aloud. But in the end, the dogs were allowed to join them. Frank had arranged for care for the cat. Finally, he had called Pete Baird and told him of his plans to find Irene. After listening to his partner's warning about the inevitable problems at work, Frank had refused Pete's offer to join them. I'd love to have you with me, but one of us getting into this much trouble will be bad enough. I need you in there to beg for my reinstatement. Besides, if Irene comes home safe and sound before I do, you can tell her where I am. And I need someone to cover what's going on here. To try and contact me if anything comes up while I'm still within phone cell range. Phone cell. Yep. Cell phone range. (laughs) Anything else I can do for you before you're fired for interfering with Thompson's investigation? Pete asked. Yes, if we're not back by Sunday at 6, come looking for us. So now, Frank sat in the van, watching a man whom many people thought of as his most unlikely friend. Jack Fremont, tattooed and scar-faced, wearing black leather and sporting a gold hoop earring, his head completely shaved, looked made to order for the job he had once held, the leader of a biker gang. That Jack had been born into wealth, and, after a number of years on the road, was now one of the wealthiest men in Las Vegas surprised almost anyone who learned of it. It wasn't a fact he advertised. He fit better into the role he was playing now. Stinger Dalton, you crusty asshole, son of a bitch! Put your guns away. He called. Jack, a low, gravelly voice called back. By God, I don't believe my fucking eyes. Figured you were dead. What? And you think I wouldn't have come hunting? I wouldn't have come haunting you before now. The front door opened, and a thin man with a shotgun stepped onto the ramshackle front porch. He was of medium height and wearing jeans, heavy boots, and a sleeveless blue T-shirt. He had long gray hair, and he wore that he wore in a single braid down his back. His arms were covered with tattoos. As he came into the view, the dogs began whining. Hush, Frank said to them, trying to hear the conversation outside. What the fuck happened to your hair, dude? And who fucked up your face? You ask me the same questions every time you see me. You need, to ri- you need someone to write you some new lines. Man, put the gun away. I want you to meet some friends of mine. Dalton looked at the van with mistrust. I'd never bring trouble to your door, Stinger. You know that. "'No feds?' "'Shit, Stinger. We both know you aren't hiding from the feds.' "'Any of them feds?' he repeated abstainly. "'No. One of them is a cop.' "'What?' Dalton held the gun up. "'Christ,' Frank thought. "'Why did you tell him?' "'Now, Stinger, in a minute here, I'm gonna take offense,' Jack said easily. "'I'm trying to tell you that he's a cop, but he's not here on a beef or anything like that. "'He's my friend. You've heard me talk about Frank. Works homicide in Las Pianas.' but he needs to do some business with you that's got nothing to do with him being a cop, except that maybe you will get his ass fired. I don't follow you, Dalton said, holding his position. The man's as good a friend to me as you've been, Stinger. Remember me telling you about Irene's husband? At that, Dalton lowered the gun. Let us come in out of the rain, Stinger, and I'll explain. Unless you think I've turned into a liar, you've got no reason to keep me standing out here. Haven't seen you in a long time, Jack, Dalton said. "'Bullshit. I was out here just a month ago. "'By the way, keep in mind that this is the guy who lets me borrow his dogs. "'Your neighbor's dogs? "'Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. "'I brought a couple dogs that would like to see you again.' "'Dalton's face broke into a grin. "'Bring everybody in.' He turned and went inside. "'Jack moaned, motioned to Travis, who started the van. "'What do you think of him?' Travis asked as they turned up the drive. "'I think Jack is pretty free about introducing my dogs "'and talking about my wife to head cases.' but if Jack says Stinger's a good friend of his, I'll try to reserve further judgment. Travis said nothing, but Frank didn't miss his look of unholy amusement. Deacon Dunk sprang from the van and charged toward Dalton, who was back out on the porch without the gun. To Frank's amazement, though, they slowed as they neared him and approached with ears back, tails wagging, suddenly well-mannered. Dalton spent several minutes praising and petting them to their obvious delight. He stood up and extended a hand as Jack said, Doug Dalton, this is my friend Travis Maguire... Maguire, yep, Maguire, Irene's cousin. You don't look old enough to shave, Dalton said. He's traveled all over the state, Jack said, working as a storyteller. Storyteller, Dalton said, but catching Jack's eye, kept any further comments to himself. He turned to Frank. You must be the cop. There was no rancer in it, though, and his handshake was firm, his smile welcoming. Stinger taught me all I know about dog training, Jack said. He's met Deacon Dunk when we stopped by over here, on our way to go camping and fishing. He's also the best helicopter pilot I know of, and protected my butt on more than one occasion when we did a little riding together. Now, he protects me from the fiercest opponent I've ever encountered. Dalton smiled. I'm his tax accountant. Tax accountant, Travis said. How many people come all the way out here for tax advice? Besides the one that live out here or contact me by fax or modem? Dalton asked. Just a bunch of old bastards on Harleys. Travis looked stunned. Not everyone in a hog is a hellraiser these days, you know bunch of ceos on him now and as for hell raising a lot of us just got tired of that shit plenty of cops ride he added casting a glance at frank sorry not this one but we're not here about my apologies about the welcome stinger said i just happen to appreciate privacy come on in just before they walked through the door though frank's cellular phone rang he excused himself and stayed on the porch to answer it uncertain about being able to pick up a signal inside dalton's fortress when he rejoined the others, they were seated around a plain, thick oak table in the center of a large open room. A few other fur- furnishings were equally spartan. One look at his frank face, and Jack said, What's wrong? That was Pete. The group up there is getting smaller. A little while ago, a botanist and a ranger hiked out with a body bag. Julius Sayer, as far as anyone can tell at this point. These two said the others in the group were going to f- work on finding a second grave. Seems Parrish hinted there might be as many as eleven others up there. Eleven? Jack said. Yes. Pete didn't mention too many details, but I guess they'd just come out of one meadow and were up on a ridge when Parrish started hinting about more bodies being there. Thompson thought Parrish was playing games until the... Tuesday evening, May 18th, a cave in the southern Sierra Nevada mountains. His lair, as he thought of it, was warm and dry. He wouldn't have minded being out in the rain. He had many times suffered suffered deprivations in pursuit of his goals. More than once, the mere observation of one of his objects of affection had required a night spent in some inconvenient place during inclement weather, but at present it was far more entertaining to be comfortable when she was not. She would be in the dark, surrounded by death, alone. She would have made the best of what was left of camp, but there would be no food. This wouldn't really harm her. Water was readily available, but psychologically, that her hunger would be to his advantage." she wouldn't know if he had made good his escape or if he would return for her he thought she probably knew of this cave he had seen footprints and thought they were most likely hers she had wandered off in this direction yesterday but she would not know if he had stayed or fled at this stage of the game hope would counteract some of her fears she would think of the promised helicopter coming to the meadow while it was in some ways a nuisance he was grateful that it tethered her to one location she would not in hysteria Go wandering off into the forest, simply trying to run from him or the scattered remains of her former protectors. He would have found her anyway, of course, but this made it so much easier. He pictured her, huddled in her own tent. He knew that she would choose her own tent. The rain would drum loudly against it. She would be tired, but unable to sleep. Cold. Hungry. Afraid. Alone. Oh, she had the dog, but the dog would not be of much help to her. This dog was a spoiled and pampered dog, a dog whose master had been a silly man who sang songs and made up tricks for the dog. he had seen the attachment dog and master had to each other, the man's displays of constant affection. Really, it was almost obscene. The man had spoken to the dog nearly incessantly. Where was the dog's dignity in that? And as for letting the beast slather his tongue all over his owner's face, he was disgusted by the mere thought of it. He was glad to have put an end to it. With his master dead, the dog would have become depressed. Dogs did become depressed, he knew. Even Julia Sayer's little dog had mourned her. He sighed, remembering how much he had enjoyed watching the little Pekingese staring from this two-story window, looking as if it would jump to its death, if it could only find a way to open the latch. He might have helped it, too, had he not been so entertained by its sorrow. This German Shepherd, though not purebred, surely, would be no better off, no, this dog, He couldn't bring itself to say its ridiculous name would only make the night seem gloomier to a woman of her sympathetic nature ugh he had so many plans for her he was torn between considering these and considering the successes of the day he knew how to build his own anticipation though and for the moment the latter won out things had indeed gone well today here he was barely a scratch on him he preferred to slowly savor murder and was surprised that he could kill so efficiently and yet feel the sort of triumphant satisfaction that he had felt then. He had outsmarted them, of course, but it was so enjoyable to have such tangible proof of his abilities available to the world. It was satisfying, but held none of the pleasures the previous killings had given him. It had all gone by a little too quickly, especially Merrick and Manton. That really was a shame. Manton, standing closer to the explosion, had been stunned by it, but Merrick, although unable to comprehend what had happened at the grave, had reacted reacted rather speedily to having his weapon taken. That was nearly admirable. He'd been forced to kill him immediately. Ah, well, life would always have its minor disappointments. He would counter this with the knowledge that their bullet-riddled faces would shock and anger their comrades. And with the knowledge that Irene had been there to see it all, including his display of marksmanship and the killing of that pompous ass, Sheridan... Sheridan who had stared at his coyotes who had presumed to know something about him Sheridan who had touched Julia he remembered that the man had hardly had actually had the nerve to go to Irene's tent late one night he had heard their voices but could not make out their conversation he only knew that she had refused Sheridan for he had walked away she must have told him that she would rather sleep with the dog because it was the dog who kept her company that night just as somewhere out in those rainy woods the dog was with her tonight It was at this point that he decided he had put off his treat long enough. He carefully withdrew them from his breast pocket. They weren't the lacy, frilly type. Nothing like that for her. Even before he had seen them, he knew that she would wear simple cotton briefs. He found them charmingly innocent, almost like a little girl's panties. Slowly, reverently, he brought them to his face. Had he been a weaker man, he would have wept. Thursday evening, May eighteenth, U.S. Forest Service Ranger Station and Helitack Unit, Southern Sierra Nevada Mountains. The saboteur who watched the Rangers' helicopters had never had such an important role to play. This provided a certain level of excitement, but not anxiety. Nikki's instructions had been explicit. The hours of training had been rigorous, and every contingency except failure had been considered. There was no thought of failure. Nicky Parrish would not, the saboteur knew, considered for a moment that his trust, never given to anyone else before, was misplaced. Nor would Nicky be thinking of his helper. Nicky must concentrate on other matters. Nicky would simply know that his orders were being carried out. He would know. The way he always knew things. The way he would know that his little moth had obeyed. The intruder loved this nickname. This Nick name. The first time they had met, Nicky had said, "'You're drawn to my light, aren't you, little moth?' That's what I shall call you. From now on, you are my moth. No one who had met this moth at work or socially would have ever said, Here is a servant. This was one part of the delight the moth took in serving Nicky. Nicky had immediately discerned the moth's desire to serve. The moth was, in fact, the perfect servant, and to be the perfect servant, one must serve the perfect master. And together they were making history. Nicky, who had always acted alone, had deemed his servant worthy of this honor. Just thinking of this heightened the moth's sense of anticipation. Perhaps later, during one of their dormant times, the moth would write a poem about it. But for now, there was work to do. And unmindful of the darkness and the danger, of the rain and the cold, the moth waited and watched, and eventually saw the perfect moment to take action had arrived. It was not difficult to cause problems, little hitches in other people's plans, if you knew what you were doing. The moth knew. The people in the ranger station were careful with the forest, where they expected trouble, but not with the helicopters. Not on rainy nights, when the clouds were covering the mountains, nights when there was little to do. They did not look at these machines, nor walk out into the cold rain. All but one of them watched television. An old movie, made long before there were computers, served up by the ranger's satellite station. Dish. Perhaps the world outdoors was no longer exciting to the helicopter crews and forest workers. Perhaps the sky and the forests were their offices, and the television and all things interior were just more interesting to them. Or perhaps it was the rain that lulled them. They should be thankful for it, really. The moth had trained for many possible scenarios, including ones in which the five people inside the small building with a satellite dish on it must be killed. But the rain would allow them to live. The rain masked sounds. Made visibility poor. One man in the station looked out at the rain from time to time, wishing it away. He was the one who had been with Nicky. It was a little puzzling that he should be there, but that was not important. Nicky, who knew everything, had said that a few of them might see God and live. The moth went to work. Within a few moments, the Alouette and Bell 212 had small disabling problems. They could be repaired. Just not in time. J.C. went back to the window and stared out into the darkness. He did not talk to the others. It only made the waiting worse. So he pretended to be watching the rain. Pretended because he didn't see the rain at all. He saw a horrible thing rise from a crude grave and beg for an embrace. He saw coyotes dancing on marionette strings held by a puppet master in the tree. He closed his eyes against these terrors, but to his dismay, he only saw them more clearly. How did David and Ben stand it? He had helped them before, but it had never been this bad. He had seen decayed remains before this, and had thought he would be prepared. But the bodies they found before were suicides, or people who had wandered and died lost, or who had fallen while hiking alone. Not pleasant, and he had always felt sorry for them. But it wasn't like this. He knew a hatred for Nicholas Parrish that he could taste in his mouth like bile. Up here, in the meadow where they had found her, he hadn't felt this way. He had stayed cool. He had kept it together. Even carrying her body through the rain with Andy, he had been all right. It didn't start to get to him until they were at the plane, after the pilot said they'd have to leave. And it wasn't until he was here, at his own station, safe and warm. (sighs) So I'm tired Um, that he started to come apart. He would show the helitack crew where to find the group in the second meadow, and then he would take a couple weeks off. He had the time coming to him. Maybe he didn't see a shrink. The idea didn't bother him. If you he needed help, get help. David had told him that often enough. He had said that it would be weirder to do this kind of work and never be affected by it. There were specialists who dealt with counseling people who had worked these cases. He'd asked David for the name of one of them. He gave a sudden start, involuntarily bringing his hand to his throat, as if holding a sound back, as if holding himself back. Out of the corner of his eye... He saw something moving in the darkness. Or did he? Jesus, he was jumpy. Beneath his hand, his pulse raced. He tried to stare past the rain-splattered window. No, nothing out there. Was there? He couldn't keep standing there. His legs weren't going to hold him. God damn. No, he couldn't live like this, cowering and jumping at shadows. He was going to face it. That was the only way for now. He was going to walk out there and look around, reassure himself. He turned away from the window, he put on his parka, and when his hands shook as he tried to fasten the snaps, he shoved them into his pocket until he opened the door. He just stepped out into the rain, peered into the darkness. Nothing. The air felt cool, calmed him, until, there, in the trees. But no, nothing. Nothing. The door suddenly opened behind him, and he heard himself make a small sound of fright. JC? What's the matter, man? One of the pilots just needed some air he said not too steadily come on inside the pilot coaxed jc stared out into the rain come on man the pilot paused then added they'll be okay just camping out in the rain we'll pick them up first thing tomorrow come on in there's nothing you can do tonight he followed the pilot in ignored the uneasy glances from the other from the other people he made his way into his closet and took out another set of clothes. He went to the bathroom and stripped to take a shower, his third one tonight, and the others were probably already talking about it, but he didn't give a shit. He could still smell the stink of that body on him, and he needed to get clean. He scrubbed until his skin was raw, let the water beat down on him, rinse his mouth, his nose. He stood there letting the sound and the feel of the water drown out everything else until it just got too cold to stand it any longer. He toweled off and changed clothes again then stared at himself in the mirror. He didn't know the man who stared back, even though he recognized the face. He didn't want to go to sleep, not with this shit running around in his head. He was spooked when he was wide awake. What the fuck would happen in his dreams? Yes, he would get help. But until then, what the hell could he do? Friday, May 19th, 2am, Southern Sierra Nevada Mountains. David, tell those two they can't work in here without masks, he said. He had said something before that. The sound of his voice had awakened me before I could make out what it was. Ben? I asked in the darkness. Oh, good. You're here, he said. Yes, I'm here, I said. Can't something be done about the heat in this place? In the tent? The air conditioning. We'll lose the computers. Ben, it's Irene, I said, setting up. Wake up, Ben. He didn't answer. I had just decided that my voice had stirred him from his nightmare, allowed him to sleep more peacefully when he said need a postmortem dental bingle i soon realized was sitting up too i scooted closer to ben reached over to try to rouse him he had moved around in his sleep and had pushed the upper sleeping bag off padding carefully around the tent my hand found his hand hot and dry know the development of the muscle attachment areas in this long bone he said this fellow might have been a southpaw he was burning up i risked using the flashlight praying that parish wasn't outside watching for it that the rain was keeping him in for the night I took in Ben's glazed look, the sheen of perspiration that covered him. I found water and a handkerchief and the Keflex, berating myself for not giving him more of the drug from the start. I managed to get his attention long enough to give him four of the pills now. How much would be dangerous? I dampened the cloth and began the work of trying to cool him down. ''Camille?'' he asked, frowning as he looked at me. ''Not even Garbo,'' I said. ''No deathbeds in this tent, understand?'' ''You fight this, Ben. Stay with me.'' ''It's so hot,'' he said, pushing the sleeping bag lower. He remained restless, and his ramblings became less coherent. He would lie quietly, then suddenly shout something, often making me jump. Before long, he began thrashing around, and I soon became worried that he'd reopen the bullet wound or something worse if I didn't get the fever down. I opened the tent and went outside long enough to gather some water from the rain catcher. It was nearly full. I managed to get him to drink some of it, and gave him some aspirin. I didn't have much faith that the aspirin would help at this point, but I wasn't going to pass up a chance that it might lower his fever. Ben seemed calmer when he heard my voice, so I talked to him as I worked. I took the sleeping bag off of him, and when I saw him tearing at his shirt, unbuttoned it and helped him take it off, running cool cloths over his skin. Eventually, I cut his pants off, too, afraid that his occasional delirious efforts to pull them off would do more harm to his injured leg. Fortunately, he didn't seem to mind keeping his briefs on. I kept on talking, kept changing the cloths. It seemed to me that he was feeling cooler, but I couldn't be certain. My hands were beginning to feel numb from the cold rainwater thirsty, I heard him say, in not much more than a whisper. One look at his face told me he was no longer out of his senses. He was in pain. I propped his head up, gave him more Keflex, and let him drink from the water bottle as long as he could. Thanks, he said, and closed his eyes. Do you want some more aspirin? I'm sorry, it's all I have. No, I'm beyond the reach of aspirin, he said. I counted the Keflex tablets. There were ten left. I wonder if maybe I had given him too many, or not enough, or if it would do any good at all. Maybe I was trying to put out a four-alarm fire with a squirt gun. I called Bingle to my side. He came, but he brought David's sweater with him. I turned out the light and lay down in my sleeping bag. I felt a rush of emotion, a sense of relief that made me want to cry. I stroked the dog's fur, trying to calm down enough to sleep. Outside, the stream was running stronger, and its rushing sound overpowered the sounds I had listened for earlier in the night. I tried to listen for Ben's breathing, or Bingo's snore, but the stream and the rain were too loud. I didn't hear Ben crying out in delirium, though, or moving restlessly, so I thought he must have fallen asleep. I don't know how much time he had passed when I heard him say, What was that story you were telling me? When? Tonight. I felt my face grow warm. You knew what was happening? You could understand me? Not always. It's a little jumbled. Parzival, I said. What? The story was Parzival the Grail Knight. He's this kind-hearted young knight who unwittingly causes harm where he means to do good. There are several versions of the tale, but I told you stories from the German poem by Wolfram von Aschenbach. You told me the story in English, he said testily. Yes, of course, based on a translation. Good grief. Don't tell me Brenda Starr is a scholar of medieval poetry. I didn't reply. Sorry, he said. After a long silence, he said, why do you prefer the German version? It's the only one I know. That's the one Jack gave me, and that's the one I read. Some scholar, huh? Look, I said I was sorry, so you did. After another silence, he tried again. Who's Jack? Our neighbor. He's, well, Jack isn't easy to explain, but he's big on mythology and folklore. Tell it to me again, he said. I'll listen better this time. I won't be able to do it justice. There are lots of complicated relationships and battles and characters whose names I don't remember. I sort of faked my way through it tonight. You'd be better off reading it when we get back. I'll let you sleep then, he said, and it wasn't until that moment that I heard what had probably been in his voice all along. Well, if you don't mind an inferior version of it, I don't mind. So I tried to distract him from his pain by telling him of young Parzival, raised in ignorance of knights and chivalry by an overly protective mother. Of course, the first time Parzival encountered knights, he could think of nothing he'd rather do than become one, and set off to offer his services to King Arthur. Although embarrassingly naive and untutored, he had a natural talent for the work. Ben fell asleep just as Parzival was about to visit Wild Mountain and meet the Fisher King. It was just after dawn by then, and although it was still fairly dark in the tent, there was enough light for me to see Ben Sheridan's pale and haggard features. "'What's wrong, Ben?' I asked. Uh, I whispered, my mind still half caught up in the Parzival's tale. It seemed to be a silly question under the circumstances. Pain, weakness, severe injuries, bad weather, hunger, a killer on the loose nearby— easy to name what was wrong with him. Or was it? I thought back to my last conversation with David as I left for my walk with Bingle. Bingle, David had hinted that Ben had troubles before we began our journey to these meadows. Whatever those troubles were, I supposed it would be a long time, if ever, before Ben Sheridan would confide in me. When I woke up, Bingle was gone. Worried, I put on my boots and jacket. I had just stepped out in the misty morning when he returned, his fur damp and muddy, his mouth looking swollen. Oh, hell, I thought, he's met up with a porcupine. But as he drew closer, I saw that he was gently carrying something in his mouth. Please don't let it be something from the meadow, I prayed. He looked at me uncertainly, as if he expected me to do something. Not knowing what my part in the script was, I stayed still. He shifted his weight, looking anxious, then lay down by my feet. Very slowly and carefully, he opened his mouth, and between my feet, deposited what he had been carrying. Eggs. Three small eggs. Quail eggs. I hoped he hadn't taken them from every egg from the nest. Perhaps I should have scolded him, but between my relief at not having someone else's remains disgorged on my boots and my inability to guess if this was something he had been praised for doing in the past, I only managed to feeble, Gracias, Bingo. He wagged his tail. I suppose you want one of these on your dog food. He kept wagging his tail. On the fur on his chin, I saw something that looked suspiciously like egg yolk. Then again, I guess you've already had breakfast. There was no way to put them back at this point, and my stomach growled, so I decided I wasn't going to waste the food. I carefully stowed them inside the tent. I had a wild vision of JC finding them there and refusing to allow me to leave on the helicopter as punishment for disturbing local fauna. Telling telling him the dog brought them to me probably wouldn't get me out of trouble. Although the rain had let up, a heavy mist seemed to be settling in. Near the tent, it was not horribly thick, but I doubted visibility... Um, would be good near the low, flat meadow, Um, so a helicopter probably couldn't land. I tried not to let this distress me, but the thought of not seeing the helicopter arrive that morning was upsetting. If Parrish didn't find me, I could manage, but what would become of Ben? The fever? The loss of blood? The possibility of infection? If Parrish never showed his face, Ben's life would still be in danger. The rainwater bucket was full again. It felt good to have something going right. That feeling of confidence was not destined to last long. Bingle joined me as I left for a walk to the stream. The rain in the container would help, but it wouldn't be enough. I decided I would refill our water bottles, which shouldn't la- take long. My sweet w- water unit could, fil- could filter a quart of water um, in a little over a minute. I walked quickly. I didn't want to leave Ben alone for any expen- extended period of time. The ground was soft and muddy, but not impossibly so. On the way, I found a long, broken branch that ended in a curving fork. I picked it up and tried leaning on it, placing the forked end under my arm. It easily withstood my weight, but it was a little tall for me, which would make it about right for Ben. I took it with me, thinking I might be able to fashion it into a crutch. If we had to move again, a crutch would be very useful. I stepped through the trees toward a sound that grew louder and louder. To my shock, the stream was now much higher, a debris-filled torrent wildly coursing through the forest and moving far too rapidly to be entered at this point. It cut us off completely from the meadow the meadow where the helicopter, if it arrived, would be landing. When I got back to the tent, Ben was still sleeping. I used a piece of string to make three measurements, from his armpit to his elbow, from his elbow to his palm, and then from his armpit to the bottom of his foot. I went back outside and checked the full length against the branch. A little short, perhaps, but, where I... but I thought it might do. I used a rope to fashion a thor- short, thick stick at the place where I thought his hand might rest. I was taping cloth padding there and in the fork when I heard Ben call my name. Ben, how are you feeling? I said as I went into the tent. Better. Good. Let me get some more Keflex for you. I'll take a little some later. I I need to relieve myself. Would you please help me dress? He asked. Oh, if you're in a hurry, not that much of a hurry. The humiliation was oddly... Obviously about to do him in, but we managed to find a shirt and a pair of shoes that would fit him from among those I'd gathered from camp. Did David train Bingle to steal eggs from birds' nests, I asked, trying to distract him. What? Uh, that was a change of subject. This morning, Bingle brought me those quail eggs, the ones in my sleeping bag. He looked over at them. No, in fact, he's trained not to disturb wildlife. Very strange. He likes eggs, though. He smiled a little and added, maybe he's courting you. I don't think dogs carry out what most women would think of as courtships, I said, although the average guy probably admires their direct approach. I helped him sit up. His skin was a little too warm. The flush on his face was obviously just not from embarrassment. Or not just from embarrassment. You seem to be a little feverish. Help me with the shirt, please, he said, ignoring my comment. I got him started with it, but he batted my hands away when I tried to do the buttons. "God damn," he said, lying back down, his hands shaking after the third button. "'You're not doing so bad, all thing considered,' I said, finishing up without further objection from him. "'Need to rest, or do you want to try a trip outside?' "'Rest.' "'Just a few minutes,' he said, breathing as hard as if he had been running. "'Want an egg for breakfast?' "'They're a little, but you should eat them, or give them to Bingle. "'I think he's already eaten. "'You gave me this soup last night. "'You didn't have anything to eat, did you?' "'No, I ate some of the soup. "'But the two of us, you're doing all the physical labor. "'You need strength.' "'Eat the eggs.' and have some soup too. It's all he left us, isn't it? We're near a meadow. There are dandelions out there and other things to eat. Besides, J.C. isn't going to forget about us. As soon as the weather clears, the helicopter will come. Eat the eggs before J.C. gets here. But while I rest, please. So while Bingo looked on, I scrambled the eggs, which combined to make a little less than one chicken's eggs worth of breakfast. I put a small forkful into the furry thief's bowl of dog food and ate the rest. I helped Ben get out of the tent, no easy task, and showed him the crutch. He put it under his arm and leaned into it. It fit better than I thought it would. I need two, he said. I laughed. I mean, thanks. You didn't have to— It's okay. You do need two. And I'll try to find another branch. But in the meantime, lean on me. Slowly, we made it from the tent to a tree. Can you manage from here, I asked. Call me when you're finished. We won't—I won't watch. I— Not so close to camp, he said. "'Ben, under any other circumstances, I'd applaud your sensitivity. "'But you're running a fever, and you look as if you're ready to pass out. "'Bingle's marked all of these trees already, so show him who's Alpha. "'Even injured, I bet you can hit higher.' "'No,' he said. "'Not here. "'Jesus, you're not exactly in a position to argue, you know that?' "'But I helped him move further into the woods.' "'It was while I was waiting for him to finish that I heard Bingle barking. "'Shit, I'll be right back.' "'I ran back to camp. "'Bingle wasn't there, but his fierce warning barks continued.' Oh God, oh God, oh God, don't let him kill the dog, don't let him kill Ben, don't let him kill me. I had no weapons other than my knife. I picked up a large stick, which even then I knew would probably be utterly useless, but it gave me some primitive sense of power. That cave dweller bashing power, I suppose. More cautious now, I made my way towards the barking, which was coming from the woods nearer to the stream. Exactly which direction, I couldn't tell, but the dog seemed to be in front of me. I moved from tree to tree, running in a crouched position, saying as low to the ground as i could bingle i said in a low voice even before i saw him bingle venaka Kayete. i didn't dare to shout it but the dog must have heard me because he stopped barking and began running towards me i heard a shot and bingle yelped but he kept running he soon reached me panting and agitated i dropped my bashing stick and ran my fingers over his fur but i couldn't find any wounds i whispered praise to him and tried to stop shaking where was Parrish? I waited whispering to bingle to stay still to stay quiet he obeyed anxiously watching me irene kelly a voice called out i thought bingle whimpered but then i realized i was the one who had made the sound thanks to that ill-mannered mutt paris shouted i know exactly where you are irene i know do you hear me yes of course you do i know exactly where you are i held on to bingle i will find a way across irene "'I will find a way across. Did you think a little water would keep you safe? Think again.' I didn't move. My heart was hammering in my chest. I waited, but he didn't say anything more. If I had been alone, I probably would have just taken off with bingle, but I had been to think of. As quickly and as quietly as I could, I ran back to the camp. I hurriedly took all the used bandages and anything that had blood on it, including the pants I had cut off Ben, and hid them beneath a pile of leaves, away from the camp.' I returned to the tent and took up Ben's sleeping bags, his shaving kit, three water bottles, matches, a mess kit, and the soup. I grabbed some bandages, the aspirin, and the Keflex. I left my sleeping bag but took some clothing, mostly rain gear. I took Bingle's food and harness. I folded the tarp and was ready to leave when I saw one last item. I grabbed David's sweater, which Bingle quickly took from me, and together we ran toward the place I had left Ben. He wasn't there. "'Ben?' I called softly. "'Had I mistaken the place?' "'Over here,' I heard him say. "'Where?' I asked, but Bingle, wagging his tail, "'moved toward a fallen tree. "'If his mouth hadn't been full of sweater, "'he probably would have barked. "'A wet pile of leaves moved, and Ben's head emerged. "'I breathed a sigh of relief. "'Are you okay?' I asked. "'A little damp, but okay. "'Thank God you hid. "'Listen, Bingle was barking at Parrish,' Ben said. "'Did you hear him?' "'Parrish? Not really. Just a voice. "'Couldn't make out what he was saying.' But Bingle's bark, it had to be perish. I managed to drag myself over here. He's gonna try and cross the stream. The stream has been swollen by the rain, so luckily for us, crossing it won't be easy. But still, he might find a place where it narrows, so we might not have more than a few minutes. Then listen, I'm going to draw him away from you, I said. Even if he catches me, he'll probably- Well, you'll still have some time. For God's sake, I don't think he knows that you're alive, I went on. I tried to bring or bury anything that might have let him know that you were at the tent- I brought the sleeping bags and a tarp and a little food and water. If you can hold out until the helicopter comes, maybe light a signal fire when you hear it. I don't know. That might not be safe either. Anyway, here's the water and the Keflex. I'll look for a place to hide you and I'll be right back. Irene, listen to me. This is stupid. Run. Just run. I'm begging you, please. Please get the hell out of here. I can hide beneath this tree. If the dampness doesn't kill you, the insects will eat you alive. I bet you've already got ant bites. Ant bites? Who gives a shit about ant bites? Bingle, I said. Cuidado. What did you just say to him? He'll guard you while I'm gone. Oh, Christ. I'll be right back. Don't. Don't come back. Just run. I started praying to St. Jude, which is something an old-fashioned Catholic will do in times of trouble. While I was at it, I asked St. Anthony to help find a safe hiding place for Ben. I also used the direct line. I'm not sure who got through to the big guy first, but I hadn't gone far when I found a group of relatively dry boulders that were large enough to hide a man and would not force Ben to suffer all the insect life in a fallen tree. While I dragged the gear there first, not listening to Ben's renewed arguments, I wasn't supposed to say while I dragged. I dragged the gear there first, not listening to Ben's renewed arguments, which he should have known were useless. By the time I came back for him, he had either realized that or worn himself out because he didn't give me any more grief. Nothing beyond muttering about hard-headed women, but the line forms to the left for people who've said something like that over the years. I praised Mingle and told him to follow us, then helped Batten, carrying him on my back when we reached the boulders. Once we managed the hellish business of getting him ens- ensconced into his rocky fortress, his bag leg was jostled four or five times. I went around the outside, studying the boulders from every possible angle. I couldn't see him unless I cr- climbed over several layers of rock. Satisfied that it was the best we could do on short notice, I gave Bingles the sentinel's job again and crawled back into Ben's cubbyhole with him, bringing his crutch with me. I quickly helped him change into a dry shirt. The shorts had fared better. I put a sleeping bag around him. I made sure the water and the other supplies were within reach. "'I'm going now,' I said. "'Will you be all right here?' He nodded. "'If you see Frank Harriman before I do, tell him—say hello for me, okay?' Sure. There was a sound from the forest, then. It was repeated, again and again, at regular intervals. I didn't recognize it, but Ben did. An axe. He's cutting down a tree. He's probably making a bridge across the water. I better get ready to lure him right back over it, then. You sure you'll be all right here? Yes. You'll be able to pull yourself out if you need to? Yes, I can pull myself out over the rocks if I have to. You're taking Bingle, aren't you? "'Yes. Perish will wonder why I don't have him if he's not at my side. "'But if if necessary, I'll try to send him back to you.' "'I don't know much Spanish,' he said. "'Come back for me yourself.' "'I laughed and started to leave, but then bent down and hugged him. "'He seemed a little surprised at first, but then he hugged back. "'Be safe,' he said. "'You too.' "'I stood up and had climbed about halfway out when he said, "'Thank you. "'You keep fighting, Ben Sheridan, or I'll be really pissed off at you. "'Take care, Lois Lane.' "'Sure thing, Quincy. Oh, God, don't make me a pathologist.' I reached the top of the rock pile, saw him below me, suddenly looking vulnerable and alone. I almost considered staying with him, but I knew that we'd be fish in a barrel for Parrish if he found us. Maybe he saw my indecision, because he said, "'Shove old Nicky off a cliff, and come back and tell me the rest of Parzival.' Sure, I'll try not to make you wait to hear the ending.' I took one last look at him, hoped it really wasn't a last look, waved, and began my journey back to the stream, listening to Parrish's axe ringing out its challenge, its silent, its siren alarm, its call. He was strong. I suppose I had known that before, but watching him swing that axe at the tree on the opposite bank disheartened me, made me wonder what on earth had led me to believe I could feed him, I could defeat him. He was swinging hard, angrily. The tree was not huge a pine tree that was tall enough to span the stream and thick enough to support his weight when he walked on it. I forced myself to think in terms of escaping him, drawing him away from Ben. My first frantic thoughts included improbable methods of killing him, throwing a large rock at him while he was chopping down the tree, beaning him while his hands were occupied, swinging across the stream from a vine, Tarzan-style, plunging my knife into him while the axe was was stuck in the wood, whittling a javelin and spearing him while he was halfway across the river all impractical i'd have to have i have a decent pitching arm but this was no straight shot and if i missed him he'd shoot me there were no convenient tarzan length vines and even if i had the time to whittle a javelin the chance of learning how to throw one accurately for a one-time chance winner takes all shot were nil i did find another stick that could be used a club and a few baseball-sized rocks if he had somehow seen me watching him and came after me before i crossed the, to the other side i'd use whatever was at hand to stop him there was a slow creaking sound, and then a thunderous crack. The tree began to give way, its upper branches catching and snapping like wildfire as they struck the branches of the other trees on the way down. It hit the ground on my left, on my side of the stream with a loud bang that shook the earth beneath me. Bingle flattened himself to the ground and put his ears back, but pa- stayed next to me. I peered cautiously from my hiding place. Nick Parrish stood surveying his handiwork. He could easily cross over now. The lowest branches of the tree would present an obstacle or two at this end, but he had chosen his crossing place and bridge material well. Would he plan on my being this close? Would he know that I might have moved towards the sound of him felling a tree? I don't think so. He would expect me to run. He expected fear. He was looking at the axe now, and as he did, I tried not to think of him using it on me. He expects fear, I told myself again. Don't give it to him. "'So I tried to think about the axe being in my own hands, "'which suddenly made me wonder, whose axe was it? "'I couldn't remember anyone hiking with one "'or using one in the past few days. "'Did he have other tools and weapons cached nearby?' "'Cached? Cached? I don't know. C a c h e d. "'Girl, I don't know how to pronounce that word. "'Anyways, (laughs) he carried the axe with him "'as he began to walk along the tree trunk. "'He used it as a kind of balance. "'He moved cautiously, closer and closer.' "'He had his hands full, the gun holstered. "'The temptation to try pitching one of the rocks at him was strong. "'The stream wasn't very far below him, only about four feet. "'It was running swift and cold, but I wasn't sure how deep. "'He wasn't looking towards me now. "'He was getting closer to the branches, which might, would partially obscure him. "'I might not have a better chance, but if I missed, perhaps I could still evade him. "'I had picked up one of the rocks and was weighing it in my hand when he lost his balance.' He had almost reached my side of the stream when one of the branches supporting the fallen trunk gave way beneath his added weight. The whole trunk suddenly dropped a few inches, and Parrish lunged forward. He let go of the axe and grasped wildly at the branches nearest to him. The axe fell into the rushing water below, but the branch he had grabbed held. He pulled himself upright, looking shaken. My enjoyment of that was brief. Whispering to Bingle to remain quiet, I watched as Parrish quickly made his way to safety, onto the bank. I moved behind a fallen tree, no longer risking watching him and listening as he moved through the woods. He came closer to where I crouched. I took my club in hand. He paused not far from me, and for a moment I was sure he had seen me that, and that he was merely deciding how best to take me captive, but he moved on, heading downstream, towards the place where he had heard Bingle barking. I made myself wait a little longer, then stood and stretched. Bingle stretched his back legs, then followed me to Parrish's bridge. I snapped the leash onto his harness, hoping he wouldn't balk at crossing the noisy current. If he fell in, I wasn't sure I'd be strong enough to keep him from being swept downstream. I needn't have worried. He didn't resist my efforts to help him scramble up onto the tree, and once we were clear of the branches, he began to move so quickly and easily that I had to concentrate on keeping up with him, rather than on thoughts of falling into the water. "'Bien,' I whispered as we reached the muddy bank on the other side. "'I think you've crossed streams this way before, Bengal.' I removed his leash, then took a moment to examine the fallen tree, to look for something that I might use as a lever to remove it, but found nothing. I realized that this part of the stream was not far from the group camp. Thinking I might scrounge some useful items from it again, I went back to it. I had to call Bingle a couple times to keep him from going back to the meadow. Among the sodden ruins of camp, I saw a length of rope that might come in handy, but not much else. I figured... "'It would take Parrish a little while "'to find where I had stayed last night "'and to rummage through the tent, "'but I didn't want to give him enough time to find Ben. "'I hurried back to the stream, "'continued along the bank "'until I was where Parrish had, near where Parrish had stood "'when he called to me. "'I moved a little way into the woods, "'found two small trees, "'and added a length of rope between them "'at about ankle height. "'I covered it with leaves. "'I hurriedly sharpened three sticks with my knife "'and planted them in the soft ground "'a few feet beyond the rope, "'sharp and up, at roughly a 45-degree angle.' so that they formed a row pointing back towards the rope. These I also covered with leaves. A little farther away, with an easy sight of the first trees, I tied another length of rope between two other trees, this time at a height of almost a foot off the ground. I quickly worked out a route through the woods, occasionally piling up stones as markers. Okay, Bingle, I said, snapping the leash back on. Let's put on a show. I moved back towards the stream, but stayed out of sight in the trees. Cantame, bingle, Sing to me. He looked at me, looked back at the meadow, and whimpered. I swallowed hard. Cantame, bingle. He lay down, and would not look at me. I tried holding his face, and still he kept his eyes averted. Okay, so that belongs to David. I apologize, I said. Will you speak for me? Hablame, bingle, Por favor, hablame. He looked up at me. Hablame. He was watching me, looking undecided. Hablame, I tried again. He barked, Muy bien, hablame. He entered the spirit of things then. He barked and barked, and I praised him in Spanish, until finally I saw movement through the trees on the other bank. Loudly in English, I called, Stop barking, please, Bingle. In Spanish, I continued to enthusiastically command just the opposite. Not wanting to overdo it, I finally said, Calmate, callete. He fell silent. I quietly petted him and praised him in Spanish. We walked back towards the starting line of the obstacle course that I had set up for Parrish. Bingle had become a parish- aware of Parrish's presence sometime before, probably catching a scent on the breeze that came our way every few minutes. At the same time, if it's not true that animals can se- smell fear, I was overloading. Oh, if it's true that animals can smell fear, I was overloading the poor dog's snoot. Parrish reached his little bridge and couldn't resist taunting me. "I'll find you, you know." What the hell, I thought. Do not go gentle into that good night. Hey, Nick, I shouted, who'd you pimp for after your mother died? There was a gratifying silence as he shouted, you'll pay for that. Taking on Mama's slogan, Nicky? That put him into a hurry. Aparate, I said to Bingle, and we gave ourselves a head start. We made a lot of noise as we ran. Bingle kept up with me at an easy slope, enjoying the hell out of himself. I was having a harder time of it, slogging through the mud. Over our own noise, I soon heard Parrish crashing through the woods behind me. I came to the first set of trees, veered around them, and positioned myself not far from the trees with the more visible rope. As soon as Parrish came into sight, I made a show of hurrying over that rope, Bingle leaping behind me. I heard Parrish shout, Nice try, just before he tripped on the other, hidden rope. I heard him scream. I kept running, calling Bingle to follow me. We ran for a long way, keeping to the trees, until finally I was sure Parrish was no longer following me. I rested, feeling sick and shaky. I held on to Bingle. He gave no sign of scenting or hearing Parrish. I waited as long as I could stand it. If one of those stakes had killed him, I wanted to get back to Ben. At the very least, I knew I had wounded him. If he was only wounded, I wanted to know where he was. I had a job to finish. I almost ran into him. Bingle realized that he was near before I did, but not quite soon enough. He had kept downwind of us, and although Bingle had growled a moment before, I still gave a cry of surprise when Parrish stepped out from behind a tree. His shirt was covered in blood. He had tied a makeshift bandage around his left shoulder. In his right hand, he held a gun. Bingo barked at him. Parrish smiled. I think I will begin by shooting that dog. And with that, this episode is over. Thank you very much for joining me. And as always, I love you. Have a great day. Um. Yeah. Peace.